My name is Ernie, and I am an alcoholic. And I have not found it necessary to take a drink or any mood-changing drug or pill or anything since the 16th of February, 1961, because of the grace of God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, people like yourselves, and a supportive family. And for this, I am indeed very grateful. I am uh, actually from suburban Washington, D.C. Potomac, Maryland is my primary residence, and I belong to the Potomac Village Group there, and I work 135 miles away in land development down in Bethany Beach, Delaware. That's the, we call that our nation's summer capital, and um, I belong to the Fresh Air Group at Ocean City, Maryland, uh, that meets every Tuesday night, a no-smoking no group. Uh, I like to start sometimes by recalling something a philosopher said a couple thousand years ago, Socrates. He defined friendship by saying that a friend is another self. And when Socrates said this, I believe that he meant that a friend is someone who understands you, a friend is someone who is concerned about you, a friend is someone who is interested in you. A friend is someone who shares with you. A friend is someone who helps to shoulder the burden when you have problems and doubles the joy when good things happen. In short, a friend is someone that loves you. So in that sense, I'm very comfortable, even though I haven't met most of you, to say good evening, friends, because nowhere in the experience of my life have I found the understanding and the camaraderie, the openness, and the honesty that I have here in this tremendous fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think that tonight we have something above and beyond sobriety that the rest of the world, most of it very sadly, lacks. And it's so refreshing to be able to meet with all of you and not to be afraid to take the mask off that I've hidden behind so much of my life because I know here at AA that you will accept me, whoever and whatever I am. And this is also a great gift. I can't go further without thanking the committee. I, I guess in, in your collective humility, you don't have a chairman designated there, but one would sort of look like the chairman. And um, I'd like to thank him. And Sue H. has been my contact over the recent months and making the arrangements. And it's just been a delight to come here and share with you this evening. I had such a great day today. I got up this morning and took a nice four-mile run south on the beach. Then I came back and had some coffee, fellowshiped with some people, and then did the tour. Went through the historic <coughs> district, went over to Brunswick, looked at that magnificent courthouse over there. It's so It's so beautiful with those oaks around it and the moss hanging off the oaks. You almost want to run in there and plead guilty to something. <laughs> uh, I drove over to St. Simon and toured there and Fort Frederica and the old Christ Church and all of the, all of the history of this area. It's fascinating. Uh, and all of the beauty that, that's here to behold. And what a joy it is to, to savor these simple things because I have the ability to be sober and fill up my sensory banks today. I'm honored also to have shared this weekend with people like Jim and with the other speakers like John B., who spoke last night, a masterful talk. I never heard anyone that combined all of the biblical expressions he did with the prince and princess frugaling and getting married and all of that business, all in one artful talk. And... Uh, Mary Jo that talked earlier this evening, who said she was shy and private, but who to us was so revealing and so intimate. She surely took that mask off today and shared with us and, and showed us the progress that can be made uh, as far as spirituality is in this program. I started out by saying that my name is Ernie Raskowskis and I am an alcoholic. And I know there's some long-timers here, and there's some people in between here, and there's some newcomers here, and I'm speaking particularly to them. Tonight I'm going to do what's called a drunkalog. 
I'm going to give you a blow-by-blow of my drinking experience. And uh, we had to be finished in a couple hours. I hope the... uh, I hope the ice cream doesn't melt. But I want the newer people here to know that maybe aren't as well acquainted with how we say things, what I mean when I say I'm an alcoholic. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I make one simple admission, and that is that I cannot take a drink safely. This is all that I admit. I don't admit when I say I'm an alcoholic that I'm psychotic neurotic, weak-willed, wishy-washy, shiftless, lazy, no account, unemployed, unemployable, a raggedy-baggedy, or any of the terrible and opprobrious things I associated with alcoholics and alcoholism before I met you good people. I only admit that I cannot take a drink safely. And this is very important, I think, for many new people because there's something grating, there's something intimidating and threatening about that word alcoholic. So when we say we're alcoholics, we mean that we just can't drink safely or predictably. And I think if there's a word in the English language that has delayed and in cases denied people the benefit of sobriety, It's that word, alcoholic. Now, my sponsor told me this working definition of an alcoholic the very first day I ever came to AA. But I must say, I didn't come here with rushing speed. I didn't hear that from him and say, and go to my first meeting and say, thank goodness, I've I've found the answer. I'm home now. Nothing like that at all, because I came here kicking and screaming I was a reluctant dragon. I had a lot of I-nevers. I never consulted a physician because of my drinking. I was never in a treatment center, never in a hospital, never a morning drinker, never a daily drinker, never a spree drinker, never took any medications for drinking, never lost a job because of drinking, never was divorced because of drinking or for any other reason. You might say, what's this guy going to talk about tonight? I didn't say I was never arrested because of drinking, did I? Because like some few of you, there have been some unjust arrests in my background. (laughs) I had, I had what I thought were the typical and normal schoolboy arrests when I was in college and in law school. I thought these things happened to everybody, all red-blooded, vigorous American youth. I was later to find out that the bar committee didn't feel that way about it uh, when I wanted to be admitted uh, as a lawyer. But uh, I had those normal arrests. But after I became a lawyer, I was only arrested once for public intoxication. And in the Washington area of AA, I got a nickname from that particular arrest as Ernie the Attorney. (laughs) So I might as well tell you that anecdote, how that came about. Now, usually when I drank, I liked to drink with other people. I usually went out with an entourage. I liked to share myself and let other people enjoy me. (laughs) But occasionally, when I felt low, when I felt depressed, I preferred to do solitary drinking, and I preferred to drink in a dive, in a low-class bar because I could go into a low-class bar and just look at the other patrons and get a little lift immediately, (laughs) get the feeling a little better, a little superior. And there was a place like this in Washington. You went three steps down, Jimmy's. I went in there one night when I was feeling low and when I was depressed, and there were a row of old men sitting at the bar. They were sitting there having a good time. They're all sitting there looking in the mirror on the back bar, and they're sitting there in those long coats that have been given at the mission, long army-type coats. They're all sitting there having a good time, looking in the mirror on the back bar. And I sat down, and I started to have a good time with them. I sat there, and I had a meditation about all the bad breaks I had had in life. Actually, as I looked in the mirror in the back bar, I said to myself, you know, kid, you better watch. 
you're getting a little fat. I already weighed 308 pounds. This is the truth, which shows you what a problem alcoholics have with the honesty part of any kind of a program. As a matter of fact, this alcoholism being cunning, baffling, and powerful, I thought I was too fat to be an alcoholic. <laughs> My idea of an alcoholic was a guy that had a lot of slack in the seat of his pants, sort of looked like his rear end had been shot off in World War II. <laughs> and at 308 pounds, you don't look like that. But anyhow... I sat down there and I started to have a good time. Now, the way I used to have a good time when I was in a depression like that, I'd order a screwdriver, vodka and orange juice, and I'd be sipping it. And uh, I'd make wet spots on the bar. That's one way to have a good time. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> then after you have a few drinks and accumulate some change, I'd be arranging the change in little triangles and squares. Another way I had a good time. And the old men and I were sitting there. We were sitting there like we were watching a tennis match. Every time the door opened, we looked over. I don't know who we were expecting. Maybe some Vassar girl unescorted to come in or Harry Truman to pop in for a beer. But um, we sat there and the door opens and we look over and we look back. But we were fooled that night because the action turned out to be in the other far corner of the bar. Over there in the far corner of the bar, there was a big, tall, lanky woman, drunk. Is there anything worse, really, than a drunken woman? I'm just, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, girls. Uh, she got in an argument with the owner of this place. They got to arguing back and forth and back and forth. And Jimmy was a pretty good belter himself. He's behind the bar and he's hollering over at her back and forth. And finally, she hurled some obscenities across the room that visibly shook up these old men I'm sitting there with. You know, they're starting to say, what kind of a place is this? Anyhow, you know, we thought this was a respectable dive. So Jimmy gets right on the phone, calls the police up, and the police are there in two minutes. And I'm just sitting there, luxuriating in being close to all of this danger and not being personally involved, yet. <laughs> this gal was a type that got all tangled up in those old wire-back chairs there, and the tables and everything, like some red skeleton bit. They're dragging her and half the furniture out of the place. She's swinging her purse around, you know, and as they go by my stool, in a flash of inspiration, in what I thought was a very gallant gesture, I reached into my breast pocket and took out one of my lawyer cards. <laughs> and I said, baby, if they give you a hard time, extended my arm, I says, call Ernie the attorney. <laughs> and I never got to pull my arm back. They jerked me right out into the paddy wagon with this gal, and we both went down and were booked together. Humiliation. The next morning, my law associate had to come and get me out of jail. But that's when I was depressed. A lot of, most of the time, I felt pretty good. I had a philosophy in those days, bigger and he works hard, and he plays hard. I still think that's not a bad way to go. But here's the way I usually drank. Five o'clock would roll around. And I'd call up one of my old classmates, one of my colleagues, or one of them would call me up. And after a tough day in court or an arduous day in the office listening to people, I was never a good listener, uh, would meet someplace about halfway between and among our offices. Now, one of my favorite drinking places was the Jefferson Hotel. Very fashionable. Show business people stay there when they come to town kind of place that would never dream of having a convention or anybody running around with tags on, very sedate, very refined. They had an organ player there that had a sixth sense about him. Uh, I'd walk through the door, he could tell the mood I was in. He'd start playing show tunes, or if I had a Spanish mystique about me that night, he'd play my theme song, Adios Muchachos, I Get Ideas. Maybe I'd hum a few bars of it. And after a tough day, that first drink, that first scotch or that first martini, 
it would just roll down and light my ribs up like the lights on a pinball machine. I'd unwind and relax. And uh, I was sort of the leader type, a little bit ahead of the rest. I'd anticipate their needs. I'd be ordering the second drink. I'd be finished with mine. They're still sipping away. I'm ordering the next round. And then being a thoughtful guy, I'd excuse myself and go out to the phone and call my wife up. I'd say, Kathy, don't hold dinner tonight. You and the kids go ahead and eat. I'm tied up with some clients here. And soon as I can shake loose, and the music playing in the background, I'll be right along. And she'd say, please, Ernie, please don't stay out and get drunk tonight. Imagine talking that way to a professional man. And I'd say, look, Kathy, I'm down here trying to scratch a living out for you people. You're giving me all this static, all this romance. Tonight I am going to stay out just to teach you a lesson. And I'd slam that receiver down, and now I've been given a free pass. You know what I mean? I'm no longer drinking with that mantle of guilt on me. I'm free for the evening. So I go back, continue to drink, and one of the guys stops me. He says, hey, wait a minute, Ernie, don't, don't order any more. I'd say, what's the matter? It's the shank of the evening. Are you running off already? Going to leave me? I'd say, look, I'm drank six or eight or whatever. I'm worried about driving home. So I'd get upset and uh, I'd say, okay, if you're that kind of a panty waste, go ahead. And the party would break up and they'd leave. And I'd go back into the men's room and tidy up my 308-pound body. And then I'd float out of the hotel, and I fashioned myself the man's man, the ladies' man, the raconteur, the bon vivant, the man of letters. You know, this AA is a very deflationary program. <laughs> you people told me I was just a 308-pound drunk. But a quarter to two in the morning, the bars used to close at two o'clock in Washington, a quarter to two in the morning, I'd be someplace with these newfound friends, these fascinating people, and I didn't want the party to end. I wanted to go over to Chinatown to an after-hour place, or I wanted to run over to Baltimore to the two o'clock club, or do something like that. And... I'd drink till two, three, four, five in the morning and then stagger home. And if you drank like that, like real men drink, you don't need that morning drink in the morning. You get up in the morning, you're still humming those show tunes a little bit, you know, <laughs> after a couple hours sleep. Now, my poor wife might have heard of AA. I'm sure she had never heard of Al-Anon. And incidentally, I'm looking forward to hearing John and Karen tomorrow. And I will be there tomorrow morning, especially to hear Karen, because I'm one alcoholic that thinks that an AA member can learn a lot from listening to Al-Anon speakers. But in any case, <laughs> I didn't know that would bring a hand. I'll have to use that again. <laughs> but in any case, I'd come down in the morning. Kathy, we had six children at the time. If I forget later on, we wound up with eight. But uh, I'd come down in the morning, and Kathy would lash in with an attack. And, of course, I would counterattack and then slam the door and practically knock the glass out of the door, leaving. So that kind of confrontation with a practicing alcoholic doesn't work. So that one approach was just unsuccessful. She learned that. Now, another approach she used when I came down in the morning is what I called the clinging vine approach. She didn't sound this way, but this is the way I heard her. I'd come down in the morning and she'd start grinding on me. She'd say, Ernie, Ernie, you were going to come home last night and sign the children's report cards. Ernie, they have to be turned in today. Ernie, sister sent a note home with little Joey to get a haircut. 
You didn't take little Joey out to get a haircut. Little Joey had ringlets, and this was before the Beatles. You know, this is when the kids were wearing buzz cuts. So she'd grind away like, like she was grinding on my aorta. And I just have to sit there and suffer this. What could I say? I mean, everything she said was gospel true. Then there's another approach she used. And that's when I came down in the morning and she didn't say anything. She didn't put the freeze on me. Should speak when spoken to, respond, but she's there doing her job. She has a morning radio show on. Toast is coming in and out of the toaster. She's scrambling eggs for the kids. I'm reading the Washington Post with one eye closed, drinking the coffee, and I'm waiting for the bombs to fall. Wait about a minute. Some of us are a little impatient. And I'd say, okay, Kathy, cut the act. I know what's, I know what's bugging you. It's my drinking. And you know what the problem is, Kathy? You're not normal like other women. That's the problem. Now, let me explain this. My wife and I met when we were both students at Catholic University in Washington. She was doing graduate work in nursing. On her 21st birthday, a couple of her girlfriends took her down to the Potomac River to the wharf to a restaurant there, seafood restaurant for dinner. She had her first drink of beverage alcohol. She had a pink lady or a sting or something. She doesn't remember what it was. But she had this drink, and it made her a little tipsy, a little silly, a little nauseous, a little uncomfortable, and she decided that she didn't like the stuff. And Kathy hasn't had a drink from that day till this day. She's now sober 37 years. I said, Kathy, if you were normal like other women, I'd come home and have a gracious drink with you. This was a lie. My idea of a gracious drink wasn't to come home and to have 10 or 12 little hands with peanut butter and jelly on them tugging at my trousers saying, fix my wagon, Daddy. My idea of a gracious drink was that bright lights and music. But I says, if my drinking bothers you like this, I'm going to quit, Kathy. I'm going to quit, as the philosophers say, semper pro semper. Beautiful expression. It means always and forever. You know, even beyond always. And as I'd say this to her, my eyes would well up with the inner goodness I saw in myself. <laughs> Not only was I going to quit drinking, but I was going to quit smoking. I weighed 308 pounds, I was going to go on a diet. And I was Catholic, I hadn't been to confession in a long time, and Saturday I was going to go to confession and Sunday I was going to march up to the rail with my six children. And it makes me misty-eyed almost now to think of this spontaneous physical and psychological and spiritual regeneration of a man, just like this. But the problem was, when I said those things, I really meant them. I really meant them to the very depths of my shallow being. So Kathy would enable me one more time, should enable me one more time and should say, okay, we'll see what happens. Now, I would drag myself downtown, and by this time in my drinking career, I had these ferocious three- and four-day hangovers. The first day after a night on the town, I couldn't even light a cigarette up. My head would feel like it was going to blow off. And I'd stop in every fountain you saw. I'd be rushing in the convenience stores and getting those big bottles of orange pop. I'd be walking down the halls of a court, and I'd disappear into the men's room, and another lawyer's talking to me, just disappear in every men's room as I go along, and terrible. The second day of no drinking, after making these promises to my wife, Maybe I can light a test cigarette. I'm feeling a little bit better. And I go downtown. Maybe I'm, op I'm able to at least open the mail up the second day, get a little bit of work done. 
third day, no booze, since I made these firm promises. Third day, no booze, things are getting a little bit back to normal. I leave in the morning, I get a peck on the cheek as I go out the door. I get some work done, I come home that evening, Kathy has a nice family dinner there, she's made her famous meatloaf. She used to make a meatloaf in those days, a loaf of, uh, a pound of meat and about seven loaves of bread stuffed into it. <laughs> Catholics could eat this meatloaf on Friday under the old rules. <laughs> but anyhow, we'd have a nice family evening. We'd have this meatloaf dinner and then we'd go out and take a walk through the five and ten or go to the library with the kids and things are getting back to normal. Next morning I get up, fourth day with no booze. I spring out of bed like a jack-in-a-box. I feel like a young lion. I'm 33 years old. I'm a practicing lawyer. And I walk over, I throw the window open. It's football weather, invigorating weather. I feel great. And boy, when those good days come along, you've got to grab them. And I go downtown and I get four days' work done in one day. In fact, I'm so exhilarated, I'm so charged up by five in the evening with accomplishment that I just can't go home and inflict myself on my family in that agitated state. So I'm going to stop just for a beer. And sometimes I'd get almost home and have a beer in some neighborhood bar and then work my way the whole way back downtown again. And I'm off to the races again. That's my drunkalog. That's how it was. There came a day in February of 1961 when I was out on the town and I crept in about five in the morning. I got a couple hours of sleep and I started to creep out. And my wife stopped me. She said, Ernie, wait a minute. She said, you know, I took you for better or for worse, but the children weren't a party to that agreement. And I'm going back to western Pennsylvania, to Pittsburgh, to your aged parents or my own, wherever they can take us, but any life is better than this. And you know, I didn't even argue with her that day. I knew it, it didn't pay. And I got into my car and I went downtown, and I wasn't singing the show tunes. The remorse set in early that day, and the hangover set in early, rather, and the remorse right behind it. And that remorse, I wonder if anyone can experience the remorse, the aloneness, the isolation, the apartness, the terror of a practicing alcoholic. I wonder. And I got downtown to my office, and I rested on a couch for a little while, and I had to go to the federal court that day. I had to argue a motion in motions court. Now, in motions court, lawyers go, there are no witnesses or anything usually, and they argue legal matters in front of the judge, and the judge sometimes can hear a, a number of them in, in a day's time. You never know where you are on the list. This day, I was number one on the list. I went in at 10 o'clock in the federal court, argued my motion, came out of the courthouse, it was about 11, and I stood there on the corner, and something happened. I was practically in the shadow of the Capitol building. It was a bleak, gray, funereal February day. Some of you here are old enough to remember when Kennedy was inaugurated. There was a tremendous snowstorm. By this time in February, that snow was dirty in a gutter. And I stood there, and that's just how I felt. I felt dirty and phony and empty. And almost as if I were directed, I walked down a side street toward the Capitol from the courthouse to the office of another lawyer. He and I had never been drinking buddies. We had been in drinking situations together. He and I had never been colleagues professionally. Our paths had crossed professionally. But I'll never know why I went to his office. And I went there and I said, Hugh... Come on down the corner and have a cup of coffee with me, will you? I need to talk to somebody. I got the whim-whams. My, my wife's leaving me. He said, sit down. I'll send out for coffee. So I sat down, and we got to talking about the evils of booze. 
And Hugh told me, he said, you know, Ernie, I haven't had a drink in six months. And I says, gee, Hugh, that's, that's wonderful because everyone around the courts knows what a drunk you are. <laughs> he, uh, he really didn't take too kindly to that. And then he dropped a bombshell on me. He said, I'm in AA. And I said, no, no. You, a former bomber pilot, you, an ex-assistant United States attorney, you, a rough-and-tumble criminal lawyer, you're with those tambourine rattlers, prayer mashers, whatever they are. Let me set the context of this for you. When Hugh made this disclosure to me, at that moment, my wife was there trying to put bus fare or something together to leave me. She was in her seventh pregnancy. We had no hospitalization insurance. Furniture where we lived looked like something the Flintstones had given to Goodwill. <laughs> I was five months behind on my house rent and five years behind on my federal tax returns. I had no car insurance. The tires on my car were smooth. I was getting about 50 calls a day from irate clients and creditors. Uh, I had all of these things going on in my life. I owed about 20000 something like that, to guys I had gone to school with, to clients, to, all, to small loan companies. I had no credit, didn't have one credit card. And you hear in AA stories about people bouncing checks. My deposit bounced. <laughs> I made a deposit in the bank and they sent it back to me. They said, your account's too much trouble. We don't need you anymore. <laughs> it's the truth. This is where I was coming from when Hugh made this disclosure to me. And when he told me he was in AA, you know what emotion I felt? Pity. Pity for him. Well, the phone rang, and it was my sponsor-to-be calling, Buck. Buck called Hugh up, and he said, Look, Hugh, I'm going to come by and pick you up for the AA luncheon. They had an AA luncheon in Washington three times a week over at the Marriott Hotel. And he says, I'll come by and pick you up. What do you say? And Hugh said, Yeah, come on by. He says, Incidentally, there's a fat one here you might want to talk to. <laughs> he says, I'm not too interested in him. So Hugh hung up. He says, that's my AA sponsor calling. These guys stay in touch, and he's going to come by and pick me up for this AA luncheon. And uh, why don't you come? I says, Hugh, I'm not in the mood to go to some luncheon today. My wife's leaving me. I got all kinds of problems. I got to raise some money. I, I says, I don't feel like going to some luncheon. He says, there's no banner on the table or anything that says AA. I says, ah, that's all right. I says, I, I don't want to go. And he says, I'll even buy your lunch. I says, no thanks, Hugh, and then all of a sudden a light bulb went on in my head. I says, wait a minute. If I go to this luncheon, will you call my wife up and tell her I've filled out the forms and everything, and I've joined this AA? He says, we don't have any forms, but we'll call her up. Well, Buck came by picked us up. We went over to the luncheon. I was impressed with the guys I met there. They were my kind of people. They were the drinking set, only they weren't drinking. They were there sitting, having a nice lunch, discussing everything under the sun, the stock market, AA, politics, women, everything. We left the lunch and came back to Hugh's office, and Buck called my wife up. What these poor spouses go through. Buck called her up. He says, Kathy, this is Buck Doyle. I'm an alcoholic. I'm in AA. I'm sitting here with your husband, Ernie, and Ernie thinks he might have a problem with alcohol. What do you think, Kathy? What do you think she thought, you know? <laughs> he was a terrific salesman. <laughs> and he said, you know, he said, Ernie's willing, like I was making some monumental concession. He says, Ernie's willing to go to an AA meeting tonight. He says, you know, you might not have any faith in this big clown, but maybe you can have some faith in this AA program. It's working for this lawyer whose office we're sitting in. He hasn't had a drink in six months. I haven't had a drink in ten years. And there's hundreds of thousands more that are sober and pretty happy in AA. Why don't you stick around and see what happens? 
poor woman had no place to go. What could she do? She said, okay. So that night, I went to South Arlington, Virginia, because my sponsor was from Northern Virginia. And I went to my first AA meeting over there in a pretty little picture postcard type of community house, a white frame, a little white frame, churchy-looking place. And as I walked up to the front door of that place, I just wallowed in self-pity. I thought to myself, look how you've struggled, kid, to get through law school. Look how you've worked. And for what? You're going into this room with all these drunks. <laughs> and I walked into that room. There were about 80 people there. And they were divided into two groups. There were 79 in one group. And there was me in the other group. If you're new here tonight, if you're new here tonight and feel that way, we felt that way. If you're new here tonight and you're wondering, am I an alcoholic? Sit back and relax. Your opinion doesn't amount for much. But anyhow, I like anniversary meetings because that night there was a young fellow celebrating his first anniversary. He told how it was, how he came here, how it is now. It was inspiring. His folks were sitting in the front row. They were just exuding gratitude. You could not help but be impressed. And I thought to myself, this is a wonderful program for these people. <laughs> wonderful program. See, here's a problem I've had all of my life. I always thought the rules applied to everybody else. I always thought their directions were in boxes for other people. You know, with six kids, I used to go to the discount store, buy a wagon. That's part of the reason you get a discount. You have to put it together. Comes in a box. Open the box up. Take the directions out. Put them in a trash can. Start to put it together. About an hour later, there's blood rolling down my knuckles. Ball bearings running across the floor. You get the picture. That's the way I've lived a good part of my life. Even now, frankly, we don't change our spots altogether. But something happened that night. For the first time in my colossally arrogant life, I started to follow directions. They told me to buy the big book. I bought it. They told me to take it home and read it. I devoured it. I don't think you can digest it in a whole lifetime. But I took it and I read it from cover to cover. I read the first story, Bill's story. Here's a stockbroker on Wall Street, a big shot, the co-founder of this program. The program worked for him. In the back of the book, they don't have it in the current edition, in the 55 edition. They had a story there called Joe's Woes. Joe was the guy that had been strapped down 35 times in Bellevue in New York in what they call a flight deck in Dupuis. And everybody knew there that there would be a day that he'd come in and be strapped down and die. He was a zombie, the walking dead. But Joe came back to Bellevue with a message of hope and of sobriety and of joy because he found this program. And that story proved to me that this program will work for anyone who is just willing to be willing. They told me to go to a meeting every night, and I did that for a couple of years. They told me to read the literature. They told me to call people up. I didn't have to say I felt like getting drunk. Just call them up and talk to them, and I'd feel better. And a lot of things started to happen that very first night that I didn't even know were happening because I was invited next door to the home of this patent lawyer who was in AA, right next door to the meeting place. And I was the center of attraction. I was the new kid on the block. <laughs> you know? And this AA is a funny thing. The worse your credentials are here, the better they like you. I told them, I said, you know, my wife's pregnant. We don't have any hospitalization or anything. They said, wonderful, you know. I haven't filed a tax return in five years. They said, great. Because here in AA, you don't have to be well-spoken. You don't have to be literate even. You don't have to be well-dressed. You don't have to have a buck in your pocket. You don't have to have a job. You don't even have to smell good. You prefer that you smell good. <laughs> You'll be accepted here in AA, whoever and whatever you are. And that's called unconditional love. And you feel that when you first come here. 
I think that's the first part of the recovery, the healing affirmation that you are somebody. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are valuable as a person. So it started that night. Now, I was lucky. In about six weeks, the Iron Curtain went up in my mind, and I could see into my past. I could see how at the age of 16, I was picked out of a fine prep school where my immigrant parents had saved nickel to nickel to send me because of drinking. I saw the wretched mediocrity that had been in my life, always the falling short, always the lack of attainment because of drinking. I saw how my wife had gone with runners in her stockings to work as a nurse at Georgetown University Hospital to help support me through law school. And the day came uh, when I was to be sworn in and I had a wait because the character committee had to see if my drinking was serious enough that, that I could be admitted. And when everyone else was sworn in in that big ceremonial courtroom in front of all 15 federal judges, I was sweating out the, the results of the character committee. And I was sworn in by myself later on by just the clerk. But this is a marvelous program because after that, I lived to see the day that I became president of the trial lawyers bar in the District of Columbia. You're not promised things like this in AA, but the possibilities are there. These things can happen if you're sober and not drinking. So the Iron Curtain went up in my head, and I admitted the fact of my alcoholism, and then not too long after that I was at my sponsor's group in Arlandale, Virginia, and I looked around at the people, a group probably as big as this section over here, and everybody looked pretty happy and pretty comfortable. And I said to myself, you know, these folks aren't involved in some conspiracy to fool me or con me. What they're saying is true. This is chronic. It's irreversible. It's progressive. It's like the cucumber uh, into the pickle. You can't reverse the process. You know, they're right. I'm going to throw in with them. Surrender, we call that. Surrender. But it's really victory because that started an exciting journey for me. It started an exciting journey. The next five years of my life were the distributive, restorative years. I got active in everything. I got active in community affairs. I got active in the bar association. I got active in the boy fight. I didn't think I'd like that. I wound up loving camping. I became chairman of the Boy Scout Creek. I got active in the Father's Club at Church. I got active in my law school alumni association. I got active in my AA group. They didn't trust me to make the coffee. They gave me what they thought was a throwaway job or a psychologist, and they made me the general services representative. But I hung on to that job and parlayed it and became the district committee man and about seven years later, I'm the delegate from Washington to New York. And I'm sitting in the back of the room and I said, a hand on my shoulder and I look up at Joe Wilson. And I said, I don't know if I was ever speechless. So these tremendous things, good things happen as a result of all this activity. This is the end of card one. Ladies, time is to call it this time and continue flying. Thank you. Uh, two. We'll continue in just a moment. Learned that far more important than this activity, so much of which is external, is the AA action that John was talking about last night that's internal. And that's the practicing of these principles in all of our affairs. That's working the steps of this program. You know, this weekend you have a nice quote from our big book, on the back of the program. We will comprehend the word serenity and know a new freedom. I have comprehended the word serenity and I certainly know a new freedom. If you're new here tonight, let me tell you this. There was a time in my life when I felt this way. I have a big family and I have a lot of clients and I got a lot of problems. And if I can't have any fun, it's hardly worth living. 
And if I can't drink, I can't have any fun, which equates to, if I can't drink, it's hardly worth living. That's the way I felt. And yet tonight I can tell you that I have perfect serenity where alcohol is concerned. You know, there's a great penitent saint, Saint Augustine, that defined peace or serenity. Peace is that tranquility which comes from order. When things are ordered and in their place, there's a beautiful stillness that comes up from all of that. And that's what I experienced this morning running along this beautiful beach. That serenity that St. Augustine was talking about, I thought about it. And I have that in my life as far as alcohol is concerned. Now, doesn't it stand to reason, today's 24-hour book said alcoholism is the major number one problem of our lives. If these steps could work that way on the number one problem of my life, can't I apply these steps to the other problems and the situations of daily living? And the answer is very much yes. And to the extent that I'm able to practice these principles on a daily basis in my life, to that extent do I experience the promises that are in the big book of AA. That's the way it works for me. I have eight children. All of them are college graduates. Two of them are lawyers. Two are teachers. One has a political appointment in the government. One is a physician. One is a happy, well-adjusted uh, housewife nurturing and raising four children. I don't think they, any of them would have the lives they did today, but for the fact that I had the, the grace and the gift to be introduced to this program when I was. So many good, good things happened to me. None of my children seem to have a problem with alcohol. We have nine grandchildren. Maybe we're victims of the skip generation syndrome and it could fall like a plague on these nine grandchildren. You know, beyond our shared sobriety and our, our happiness, I think you and I have a duty to generations yet unborn. There was a beautiful moment back in 1935 when Bill W. and Dr. Bob got together, just the love of one drunk for another. And I think it's our duty to keep that as bright and as shiny for generations yet unborn as it was when we found it. I think sometimes we have to stop and think, what's our fellowship going to be like 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 500 years from now? Because I think we'll always have people with addictions with us. You know, the newest person, maybe there's somebody here tonight that you're at your very first AA meeting at this conference. If you are, I, I think that's wonderful. But as new as you are, in a historical perspective, you're going to be looked upon as one of the founders of AA. What do you think of that? Because we're within our first 51 years of AA. The people looking the Christian church in the first century are called the fathers of the church. We're only in the beginning of one of the great movements of all time. Well, we don't want that ice cream to melt. We want to get formed. I have to figure out a way to get toward the head of the line gracefully without running. But in any case, <laughs> that's an art. But in any case, let me move along with just a few final thoughts. That very first day when Buck said to me, an alcoholic is a person that can't drink safely, Ernie. He said, you know, if you have hay fever and you're, you're around ragweed, you're going you're gonna to sneeze. doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Southern Baptist, whether you went to college or didn't, you're going to sneeze. And if you're an alcoholic, you're not going to be able to handle alcohol. And it seems somewhere between 5 to 10% of the people that drink, something happens so that they lose control. A mental obsession comes in there off to the races. We call that an, an illness. So you don't have to say you're nuts. You don't have to say you're bad. You can get between the horns of that dilemma and say like we do, you have an illness. Well, that was a good out. And even in my fogged up state, that was easy enough to understand. But what's hard to understand even tonight is this. We had such a great day today, didn't we? And you know, life isn't all headlines. Life is a series of little events. 
I learned from you people that first, I thought the first step, my life being unmanageable, I thought that meant that that's going into bankruptcy today, being disbarred today, being convicted of a felony. No. If I shaved one way and I would have liked to shave another way and the reason was booze, then my life is unmanageable. Most of us, I'd say all of us, live lives of small events and transactions. We either do this with joy or with grief, and booze makes the big difference for us if we're alcoholics. You know, I've gotten so much from all of you. They say we're impetuous, we're impatient, we're emotionally immature. But let me talk about the positive side. You people in the fellowship of AA, to me, seem to have a zest for living. You want to milk all of the goodies out of a 24-hour period. You want to savor all the nuances. And we've learned that sobriety can do this for us. We can live, I think, more than most people can. I really believe that. But the mystery for me tonight is this. We're sober and we're relatively happy and we had a great day today. There's a woman like one of you out there tonight that tonight is going to pulverize some poor kid with her car. She's going to wake up tomorrow morning behind bars and never even know what she did. There's some guy that's going to be waked tonight in a funeral home, a drunkard's death, the final cruel indignity on his family. You know, there's no shame in dying from cancer. If you die a drunk, your widow's there half grief and half relief. There's some lawyer that maybe helped a lot of people in his life but finally got in trouble because of his drinking and was disbarred. They say there's about 10 or 11 million people out there right tonight fighting this thing. Boy, our work is far from done. And I have to ask myself, out of these millions of people, didn't the good Lord make some of them more deserving of this program than me? And I have to answer yes. Weren't some of these people intrinsically better than me? And I have to answer yes. Then how is it that you and I are here? The only explanation I think there is, is that the good Lord might have made millions of people better than he made us, but I'm convinced he must have loved us more to give us this gift perhaps just this once and undeserved so I want to keep it and cherish it with you a day at a time as we trudge along to a conference I think is coming in the future that's going to be mind-blowing Dr. Bob's going to be there Bill Wilson's going to be there all of us are going to be there it's going to go on forever and it's going to be the place called Happy Destiny Until we meet there again, may God keep you and bless you.